when we talk about building data-driven strategies, um, what we're essentially talking about is the process of conversion optimization. Um, a lot of people see conversion optimization as just something that happens on the website, but it doesn't need to be. It's actually something that you look at from end to end, from how you're attracting your traffic, where you're attracting your traffic from, to your content, to your website experience, to email marketing. It covers every step of the conversion funnel. Hello everyone. Get ready to dive into the world of marketing and business strategies with an episode that will blow your mind. Our guest today is the renowned business strategist and CRO expert, Michael Lapps. He's here to reveal the secrets of conversion optimization and how it can help you build customer loyalty like never before. This episode was originally a webinar and we've transformed it into a captivating video podcast. You'll get to see Michael in action as he refers to a presentation, giving you a front row seat to an exclusive masterclass. Also, if you don't want to miss out on a single episode of VWO Podcast, make sure to hit the follow button and stay up to date with our wonderful content. So, without any further delay, let's dive right in and learn how data-driven strategies can unleash the power of customer loyalty. So, in short, um, conversion optimization is the process of crafting customer journeys that convert. And if you're crafting customer journeys that convert, you are naturally going to be building a very loyal customer base. The higher your conversion rate is usually a really good indication that you've addressed their pain points, you've addressed their motivations, you understand their behaviors, and then the strategy that you've built addresses all of that. Um, so this is, I guess, the process that I'm walking you through today. Why is it important? Um, a couple of reasons. Number one, People don't come to your site just because they have nothing better to do. They come to your site for a reason. They either want to inquire, they want to learn more, they want to buy something. So convert optimization allows you to make it really easy for them to do whatever it is that they came there to do. Um, second benefit is you really get to learn about who your customers are. I know we speak to a lot of companies, we sit in a lot of uh, boardrooms and you've never seen this to amaze us how a lot of people think that they know who their customer is but actually their personas are horribly outdated or they've been grouped together by age or demographic profile rather than psychographic profiles like motivations. Um, so conversion optimization is valuable because when you have that information, um, you can actually optimize your entire uh, digital uh, strategy across all channels. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite stats in relation to conversion optimization. So for every $92 that, uh, that companies spend on driving traffic to their website, only $1 is spent on trying to convert those customers. And when you think about the fact that cost per clicks uh, for AdWords and Bing are going to continue to go up as things get more competitive, when you think about the fact that, um, you know, SEO is also highly competitive and is, you know, constantly moving targets, people aren't spending enough time focusing on what happens when the traffic hits their website, because that experience is 100% within your control. Um, and then finally, why is conversion optimization important? Well, you're no longer actually being compared to your competitors. So if I'm under armor, as an example, I shouldn't just be looking at what Nike is doing in the digital space. I should be looking at what beauty brands are doing. I should be looking at uh, literally anyone in, in the digital space, people who sell travel wallets or watches. Even though you're not necessarily competitive, we live in an era where uh, our rate of technology is increasing exponentially. 
and technological use and uh, I guess the ability to provide really personalized experiences. So if I'm buying a pair of shoes from Nike, I've just had a really good experience on uh, a company that sells, uh, for example, there's a company that sells travel wallets here um, in Australia called Bellroy. Highly recommend you check out their UX. It's pretty phenomenal. But if I've just bought something from them and then I go to the Nike website and I find that their experience is incredibly lackluster by comparison, it doesn't really matter what Under Armour are doing. You need to be the best in digital in general, not just compared to your competitors. So finally, this is how most people approach their digital strategies. Um, they prioritize opinions over data. Um, some of you may have heard the term HIPPO being used. Uh, it's an acronym that stands for highest paid person's opinion. Again, it never ceases to amaze me how often decisions are made in this way. People who feel that they know best, people who've maybe been at a company for five, 10, 15, 20 years, but they haven't necessarily kept up to date with who their customers are, with what's happening in the digital world, with what's actually available out there. So uh, I guess the strategies are being built based on opinions. And this is a really good way to drop customer loyalty quickly. So this is essentially what we want to do. We want to flip things around. We want to use the data, not opinions approach. So this is... Uh, this is how it works. So from a methodology perspective, if you want to build data-driven strategies, if you want to foster customer loyalty, um, this is your methodology that you can follow. Now, the really the most important parts that you want to be focusing on here are the research and analysis components. If you get the research and analysis components wrong, then your hypotheses are going to be incorrect. And then whatever it is that you implement, whatever it is that you're going to be testing is not going to work. So a lot of companies are really in a rush to, I guess, skip through the research and analysis components and get to the more tangible parts like the, the physical implementation. But by doing so, they essentially are losing out on uh, the most valuable part of this whole process. So how do we do uh, the research and analysis phase? Well, we're looking for trends and patterns across multiple data sources. So uh, again, one of the one of the big things that we see. So this is, I guess, some of the research uh, methods that we use. And one of the big things that we often see is, for example, someone does a customer survey, and uh, it seems like there's a few people who complain maybe about delivery turnaround times or um, certain buttons or uh, functionality isn't working on the website properly, and so. People are in a rush to just go and fix everything, but they haven't actually validated it across other data sources. And this is, I guess, a really critical component when you're building your data-driven strategies. The more data sources you have used to validate a hypothesis, the more likely that hypothesis is to be successful and the more likely it is to actually deliver an uplift for, for your website. So if you see something in analytics or if you see something in session recordings, then you want to validate that through surveys or through user interviews. Um, so again, if, if, you're build, if you build a hypothesis and it has four or five different data sources that have validated it, then that goes to the very top of the list um, of things that you want to test or implement. And if you only see it on one data source, then it might be that you need to just continue the research um, to continue validating it. Um, so we kind of split our research up into quantitative and qualitative. Um, I think another place where a lot of people go wrong is they tend to do one or the other. 
they jump into Google Analytics or they jump into Omniture and they have a browse around and they find a couple of insights and then that becomes their, their golden egg. Um, but it's not, um, it's not being continuously researched. Um, so we look at it from both sides. We want to look at um, people in their natural environment. So things like session recordings or heat maps where people don't know that you're kind of tracking their behaviors and their movements to stage behaviors, like use interviews, use the testing customer surveys where they know that you're monitoring their behavior and they're actively giving you answers in response to questions. Um, and then you've got all of your quantitative stuff like uh, analytics as well. So we kind of combine all of that together in the research phase. And then that allows us to go into the ideation component. So these are some of the tools that we use. I uh, highly recommend for you guys as well, um, if you haven't looked at them already. Uh, so Google Analytics, look, this is, this is a staple. This is kind of 101 stuff. If you're using Omniture, um, sometimes it's good to have analytics on there as well, just because Omniture as an Adobe product is not as intuitive as analytics. It can provide a lot of information, but analytics is often easier to use for kind of the rest of your team. Um, Typeform is a really good one if you want to be doing customer surveys. Um, they have a really beautiful user experience. You can brand all the surveys. You can host them online on your website. Um, you can have kind of if this, then that functions and dependencies. So you can push people through different journeys depending on how they're answering questions. Um, so we use this one a lot um, from, a, from a surveys perspective. Um, Hotjar is kind of a bit of an all-in-one tool. For those of you who are looking for something a little bit more cost-effective, um, allows you to do your heat mapping, your session recordings, it allows you to do recruitment for user testing. Um, there's, there's a lot that it can do there. It can do some form tracking as well, but because it's an all-in-one tool, um, sometimes, it's, um, sometimes it doesn't do certain things as good as others. I've actually realized that I've left Crazy Egg off this list. I apologize. So we also use Crazy Egg um, for heat mapping um, and scroll mapping, depth mapping. So um, I highly recommend uh, having Crazy Egg on your site and active at all times. Um, User Builder is just a, a, a customer feedback tool. Um, again, it can do some of what those other ones are doing. So I'm just kind of showing you different ecosystems that you can combine uh, however you like. Um, User Builder is excellent from a UX perspective because if someone is having an issue somewhere on the site, um, there's like a little pop-up that comes up and it takes a screenshot of where they are on the page. They can leave a comment um, and then you can actually go and see the problem live. So there's a lot of value in what User Builder offers. Um, it's also a really good customer feedback tool. And then Formissimo is essentially just form tracking. So if you are an inquiry-based business and you have long forms, I highly recommend using Formissimo because it just allows you to see um, where people are dropping off in the process. So maybe they're spending a particularly long time on certain parts of the form um, or maybe certain parts of the form are broken or maybe you're asking too much information. So it'll actually tell you where you're losing them. And then Content Square is kind of like a combination of all of them. Um, this is more of an enterprise tool. Um, you're kind of talking about 8,000 Australian dollars a month as a starting point. So if you're a bigger company, um, I can actually recommend Content Square because what they're doing is pretty phenomenal. But then you've got something like Hotjar that's kind of like a couple hundred dollars. So it's, the, it's, it's a huge difference in cost, but... It, there's also a huge difference in capability. So once you kind of spend your time in that discover and understand components, you're getting, kind of gathering all your data, um, you're using Google Sheets or something more visual to collect all of your insights. 
that's when you go into the ideation phase. So that those pictures that you see there, there's really kind of no way not to make this process manual and visual. You kind of need to take a big step back and actually have a look at it and pin everything on the wall and group things together by things like pain points and motivations and behaviors and start actually mapping out the user journey because um, what you think, who you think might be your competitors are not necessarily your competitors. We have like a really interesting instance um, with a company that does uh, tailor-made suits. And they always assume that other companies that did tailor-made suits were their uh, first competitors. Um, but actually, as it turns out, uh, most people go and try and buy off the rack first, realize that they might be uh, a shape or size that makes buying off the rack difficult, kind of like for myself. Um, and so then they realize that it's probably easier for them just to go and get something tailor-made. So when you look at it from a customer journey perspective and the keywords that you're targeting and who your competitors are and how you're talking to your customers, what their pain points are, it, it completely changes that entire journey. And when, you, when we changed the content on the site to start talking to people like myself who had had really bad experiences buying kind of off-the-rack suits, um, it completely changed the process and uh, their conversion rates and engagement rates. But then more than that, because they had a good product, because they communicated um, to their customers through every step of the funnel, they actually built a lot of loyalty because that funnel, that conversion optimization, those insights also translated to how we optimize their in-store experience. So when you're kind of building, um, I guess, all of your, uh, your data-driven insights and when you're building your actionables off the back of that, just remember that it doesn't have to be limited, as I said in the beginning, to just your website. You can take those insights and apply them to advertising, radio, TV, print. You can apply them to SEO, to Biddable, to email marketing. So um, those insights are multi-channel in their use. And then from there, you might want to start testing things. So if you are focusing on your digital experience, obviously we, we recommend using uh, ZWO as your A-B testing tool. Um, any client that we have from an A-B testing perspective, we use ZWO. We just find them super easy to use, very easy to integrate, um, quick to set up, um, and they have a, a lot of really excellent support. So uh, we, we use them pretty extensively. Really, if you're, if you're going to be testing, um, on site, just make sure that you've done that discovery and understand component because it is really, really critical first. Otherwise, a lot of people jump straight into the testing and then, then they find that a lot of their tests fail and they don't understand why. And then they just think, well, testing isn't for me. It's not working for us. Let's just not do it. But it just means that you haven't gone through the proper steps first. So this is another really big one. Take your time with this process. Again, research is so, so critical. Um, when you look at uh, management consulting firms like McKinsey, there's lots of management consulting firms out there. What separates McKinsey and what makes them so much better than other management consulting firms and what has made them so famous is their ability to ask the right question at the right time to the right people and to dig a little bit deeper. I think that this is the major stumbling block for a lot of people when they're trying to build their strategies is they're often not using, they're not asking the right questions because they don't have the right data. So really take your time here. Don't rush it. Um, and if, if something doesn't feel right, then it's okay to dig deeper. I understand that stakeholder management is important here. And often there's higher ups who kind of want, want you to rush through because they want, yeah, everyone's got KPIs and goals they need to hit, but it's really important to set proper processes from the very get go. 
Um, so that's, uh, this is, I guess, a, a really big part for us. So in terms of timelines, just to give you guys an indication of how things work um, for us. So generally speaking, we're talking about anywhere between eight to 12 to 16 weeks. Um, a lot of this will depend heavily on user recruitment. So if you're going to be doing user interviews, particularly if you're going to be doing eight, 10, 12 of them, it's, it can be difficult to recruit people. Um, people are busy, people cancel, you've got your own meetings that you need to do. Um, so that process can blow things out. But generally speaking, things like Google Analytics setup and optimization and analysis, um, heat maps, if you've got enough traffic and session recordings, you can get those things done earlier on and you can already start to build your insights. And then you kind of want to be validating, as I said, as you keep going through. So for example, if you do your uh, Google Analytics analysis in the first month, you go and you build all of your insights from there. And in the next month, you go and you do a couple of user interviews and some live surveys and some customer surveys. And then you start asking questions based off the first round of insights. You see what is validated and what isn't. The things that are validated, then in the third round of surveys and interviews, you can kind of continue that process. And that's essentially how you build um, your overall strategy and how you kind of tie in, um, how you tie in insights across, uh, across multiple data sources. So at the end of the third or fourth months, depending on how much traffic you have and how many interviews that you've done, that's when you kind of want to put the report together. And from our perspective, it's really important to take other teams that are going to be involved on the journey here. Take your marketing team along on the journey. Take your brand team along on the journey. If you have a, a digital agency who's handling your SEO or your biddable media, take them along on the journey because all of these insights are super, super valuable to them. Don't have this be a project in isolation, kind of under lock and key. The, make, make the data free, uh, set it free and let it be uh, free flowing. So then this is kind of how we, we build things out. So there'll be some things that are really obvious that you don't need to test. As an example, um, sometimes we see in heat maps that uh, people are, there's a huge heat map over where people are trying to click on a button and they're trying to click on that button repetitively, but that button actually isn't clickable and it doesn't go anywhere. So you don't need to test making that button clickable. You can just make it clickable. Um, but then things like uh, adding new features, adding functionality, um, rewriting content, those are things that you would actually want to test and build hypothesis for. So some things you could just implement straight away and some things you can put into your testing plan. So just in terms of testing, um, again, uh, I think that from a testing perspective, a lot of people are quick to jump to this stage, but then they also don't test properly. Um, a couple of really core components to testing. Um, number one, uh, please make sure that you test in full weeks. So for example, if you start on a Monday afternoon, you have to finish on a Monday afternoon. You can't finish on a Friday morning because you need to account for variations throughout the week. So if you have huge volumes of traffic, if you're getting you know, a million plus visits to your website a month, you might be able to run a test every one or two weeks. But if you're getting 20, 30,000 visits to your website a month, you might need to run that test for a full month because you also need a minimum of 250 conversions per variation. So you you've got your control and then you've got your variation that you've designed. So you need 250 of whatever your conversion metric is on each variation before you can actually call a winner. 
And then the last component is you need to have at least a 95% statistical confidence. So this is, uh, again, a really big one that we see a lot of people skip over. They see the statistical confidence and VWO gets to maybe 70 or 80%, and then they go and implement it. And they're surprised when after implementing it, they don't see the uplift. That's because 70 or 80% when it comes to testing isn't good enough. You need to see 95 to 99% statistical confidence. If you don't see that, then do a little bit of analysis, figure out where your uh, hypothesis may have been slightly off the mark, then rebuild the test and rerun it. And so again, the, the actual testing component is the bottom of the funnel, right? So this is where you kind of made your bread and butter. This is where you validate the fact that your data-driven strategies and your data-driven approach is working. So there's a lot of pressure on this side, on this part of your strategy. Um, so it's just really important that you follow proper testing protocols. Um, otherwise, eventually people are going to realize that it's, it's not working. And I think there's also an expectation that when you're, when you're doing A-B testing, that every test is going to be a winner or a lot of them, but that's actually not the case. Um, I think the global stat is that on average, one out of seven tests are winners, right? It's not a lot, but that one test can be a 10 or 20 or 30% uplift. We've run tests for our clients where there's between 80 to 120% uplift because yes, partially things were quite broken to begin with, but also the hypothesis was so big and there were so many touch points that were validated that the second we made that change, it made a, it made a huge difference to their business. So even if you're kind of getting two or three tests out of seven as a success rate, that's actually two to three times the global average. So you're doing pretty well. So just when you're doing your stakeholder management, definitely, definitely keep that in mind. So from an SEO content perspective, when you're doing your surveys and when you're doing your interviews and you're doing your competitor analysis, you can actually start looking at what type of search terms your customers are using to find and browse your products, um, which can then feed into your content strategy. Same thing is you can actually see what questions your customers are asking when you know their pain points and their motivations. Um, you can write content that addresses that. You can push that through social. Um, you can push that through email marketing. Um, you can also ask them what type of information they need in order to make a purchase decision, which affects your on-page content. This is particularly valuable um, in the e-commerce space. Um, so from an SEO content perspective, I think that there's a huge amount of value in doing this kind of research and understanding who your customer is, because a lot of people just kind of want to target very broad keywords, but this will allow you to look at your more long-tail keywords and build a really specific uh, approach with traffic that converts rather than just drives uh, visibility and awareness. Um, from a biddable perspective, so again, uh, looking at things like major pain points and motivations, you can use that in your site link extensions. Um, you can use that um, in terms of the types of keywords that you're targeting, you can use that in your landing pages. Um, you can use that in building your competitor strategy. So if you are the type of company that likes to get on competitive keywords, because you operate in that kind of a highly competitive space, um, then this is, uh, your opportunity to find out who the competitors actually are, and then building out your pain points into your ad copy will make you stand out even more. Um, also understanding. You know, looking at analytics or omniture and understanding how many touch points a customer needs before they actually purchase from you will also allow you to figure out how many potential biddable channels uh, you should be across. Should you have retargeting? Do you need display? Should you be using video and YouTube? Is hate social an effective channel for you? If you need four touch points with a customer, 
how do you go and build those four touch points? And then from an email marketing and CRM perspective, so again, um, if you're building out more effective persona profiles, uh, you can then go and build that out in your CRM. Uh, you can have more, uh, I guess, specific fields in your CRM um, that you want to collect in terms of data on your customers. You can then leverage, you can pull that data into AdWords to build more specific audiences. You can pull that data into paid social to build specific audiences. Um, and then you're, could also, you're also asking them what would need to happen for them to become advocates, to leave reviews. Um, so you can build that into your automation and your email sequences uh, post-purchase to try and get reviews and build loyalty and understand uh, who your customers are. So in terms of kind of next steps, as I mentioned, there's, there's a whole bunch of tools. Um, this, this will be available uh, for you guys, this presentation, so you can kind of um, go through through this part yourselves. I'm, I'm again, just conscious of time and the fact that we, um, we want to have a bit of a Q&A session um, for those who want to ask questions. Um, but I think that this is one of the areas that a lot of people want to start investing in, but they often don't know where. So I think the tools that I've given you, they're super easy to use. They're very intuitive to set up. Um, you don't need to be a developer. Um, you can use Google Tag Manager, or if you have a dev team, you can essentially just send them the codes and they'll install it all for you. You can set it up. Most of these tools you can set up yourself in probably like 10 minutes. Um, so it's, it's not that complicated to use. Um, but the big thing for us is make sure, again, just reiterating the super important points. Don't just, number one, don't just focus on driving traffic, focus on converting traffic. Because if you want to have a loyal customer base, you need to build a digital experience um, that is best in class. And I fully appreciate that people have limitations on platform, on budgets, on timelines, on capabilities. Um, but if you really want to be growing in, in the digital space and you really want to be ha harnessing the power of data, at some point you're going to have to make the call to start investing in this space. Um, so use the tools that are available out there. There's always more and more coming out. Um, spend the time on the research and analysis piece. Um, if you can do it in-house yourselves, fantastic. If you don't have the resources or the time, find someone who can help you do that. And it doesn't have to be an agency. It can be a freelancer um, or hire a team in-house um, you know, who specialize in this space because it's just getting to the point now where you're not using data to build your digital strategies, then ultimately you're, you're not building, you're not setting yourself up for success. Thank you, Michael, for these wonderful insights about data-driven strategies and customer loyalty. And thank you, folks, for sticking with us throughout this episode. Now, it's your turn to take action. Implement these game-changing strategies and let us know what impact it had on your business. Share this episode with anyone who could benefit from these insights. And don't forget to check out the other fascinating conversations that we've had with industry experts. Before you go, make sure to hit the follow button so that you never miss out on a single episode of VWO Podcast. That's a wrap from our side. Until next time, goodbye, take care, and always be testing.